Once, in a mystical vision, St. John Bosco saw ten hills that thousands of his oratory boys were commanded to climb. We'll hear Don Bosco's secret to making it to the top in this episode of The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. On the evening of October 22nd, Don Bosco had a dream from the previous night. At the same time, a young man named C.E. from Castle Monferrato also had the same dream, appearing to be with Don Bosco and speaking to him. In the morning, C.E. was so impressed that he told the dream to his professor, who urged him to go and tell Don Bosco. The young man went at once and saw Don Bosco coming down the stairs, who, curiously, was looking for the boy to tell him about his dream. In the dream, Don Bosco was in a large valley full of thousands and thousands of young men. Among these young men, he only knew those from the oratory. The others were those who might come later. With the young men were priests and clerics from the oratory. A very high hill closed off that valley on one side, and a voice said to Don Bosco, Do you see that hill? You and your young men must climb it. But how will we be able to make such a long journey? Those who will not be able to go on their own feet will be carried, the voice responded. Suddenly, at one end of the hill appeared a magnificent triangular-shaped wagon, and it had three wheels that moved in all directions. Three rods reached a point above the chariot were a banner on which innocence was written in large letters. The chariot advanced into the midst of the youths. Many boys climbed on it, and the number was 500. But only 500 out of so many thousands of youths were still innocent. Don Bosco was placing these on the wagon, thinking which way he should set out, when he saw a wide and seemingly comfortable road open before him, but it was all strewn with thorns. Then suddenly appeared six young men dressed in white, hoisting another beautiful flag on which was written penance. They stood at the head of all those young men who were to go on the journey. The signal was given for departure. Many priests sprang to the helm of the chariot, which, drawn by them, began to move. The six dressed in white followed, then all the rest of the multitude. Don Bosco looked back to see if all the young men had followed. Many had remained in the valley. Many had turned back. Troubled by inexpressible grief, Don Bosco decided to retrace the path he had already taken to persuade those ill-advised youths and help them follow him. However, he was absolutely forbidden to do so by his guide. "'But those poor fellows are lost!' he exclaimed. The guide answered, Worse for them. They were called like the others and did not want to follow you. They saw the road to be taken, and that was enough. Obedience is also for you. Don Bosco had to continue on. He had not yet soothed this pain when another sad incident occurred. Many young men of those in the wagon had fallen to the ground. Out of those initial 500, barely 150 remained under the banner of innocence. Don Bosco was upset with this. Hoping that he was in a dream, he made every effort to wake up. He clapped his hands and he heard the sound of his claps. 
He groaned and listened to the sound throughout the room. He wanted to dispel this terrible dream, but he couldn't. Ah, oh, my dear young ones, he exclaimed, narrating the dream. I know those who stayed in the valley and those who turned back or fell from the wagon. I have known all of you. I will make every effort to save you. So many times you were invited to confess, but didn't answer the call. For goodness sake, save your souls. Many young men who had fallen from the wagon joined those walking. Meanwhile, the music of the chariot continued so sweetly that, little by little, it vanquished Don Bosco's grief. Seven hills had already been crossed. On the eighth, they entered a wonderful village where they stopped to rest. The houses were of indescribable wealth and beauty. Don Bosco said of them, St. Teresa noted that talking about the things of paradise is to belittle them. They're just too beautiful for words. So I will only observe that the doorposts of these houses seem to be of gold, crystal, and diamond altogether so that they would bring surprise and joy when seeing them. The fields were filled with trees, with flowers, and ripe and green fruit could be seen growing on them simultaneously. It was a magnificent enchantment. The young men scattered throughout the village in various places, some for one thing, some another, because their curiosity and desire to have some of that fruit was great. In this village, the young man from Casali came across Don Bosco and engaged in a long conversation with him. Don Bosco and the young man remembered the questions asked and the answers given perfectly from their dreams. Don Bosco had another strange surprise here. His young men suddenly appeared to him as having become old, toothless, full of wrinkles on their faces, white-haired, stooped over, lame, and leaning on canes. Don Bosco was stunned at this. The guide said, You wonder what happened. But it has not been just a few hours since you left this valley, but years and years. Look in a mirror, and you will be convinced I speak the truth. A mirror was presented to Don Bosco, and he saw that his appearance was that of an old man with a wrinkled face and bad teeth. In the meantime, the group set out again, and the young men asked from time to time to stop and see things. But Don Bosco told them, no, let's go forward, forward. We don't need anything. We are neither hungry nor thirsty. In the far distance, on the tenth hill, sprang a light constantly growing as if coming out of a spectacular door. Then the singing began again, but it was so beautiful that something similar could only be heard and enjoyed in heaven. It wasn't the music of instruments, nor did it seem to be of human voices. It was music impossible to describe and such was the joy that inundated Don Bosco's soul that he awoke and found himself in bed. He thus explained his dream. The valley is the world. The hills are the obstacles that we have to detach ourselves from. The wagon, you understand, is innocence. The young men on foot are those who lost their innocence and repented of their faults. Don Bosco added further that the Ten Hills depicted the Ten Commandments of God's law, the observance of which leads to eternal life. He then announced that he was ready to confidentially tell certain young men what they did in that dream, whether they stayed in the valley or fell off the wagon. The next evening, Don Bosco asked the clerics and priests what their thoughts were about that dream. 
They felt that it did not concern only the youth in the oratory, but indicated the state of society worldwide. Don Bosco approved, smiling at their suggestion. It appears that at the end of Don Bosco's climb was heaven, with beautiful music and bright light. Everyone had to fight the good fight and overcome their faults to reach it. However, not everyone attained heaven. Many fell away because they lost their innocence. This dream reflects the reality, many are called, but few are chosen. Thank you so much for watching, and if you'd like to hear how St. John Bosco's prophetic letter to Franz Joseph could have changed history, please click on the video I've put on the screen. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you. Don Bosco's love for souls wasn't limited to the walls of his oratory school for boys. He did apostolate wherever he went and with whoever he could, even while traveling. Hey, how's it going? Today I have two stories of Don Bosco's fervent apostolate with random strangers on a train. You're watching The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. On August 15, 1860, Don Bosco left the oratory to travel to Strembino, a small town in Piedmont. He was accompanied by Riano Giuseppe, who left us the report of his trip in writing. As soon as Don Bosco was in the train car with the other travelers, a man who looked like a wealthy shopkeeper entered. He immediately started smoking, although it was forbidden in that compartment. However, he did ask if Don Bosco would mind the smoke before he lit his cigar to which our saint replied that he didn't mind, as long as it was just one cigar. But as soon as the shopkeeper finished one, he began to start another, upon which Don Bosco said to him with his usual smile, Excuse me, sir, until now I have done penance for you by inhaling your smoke. Now I'd like you to do some penance for me by abstaining from it. Ah, you're quite right, father, replied the shopkeeper, putting away his cigar. Then the two of them talked of Turin and various other things, until finally the shopkeeper came to talk about charitable institutions, the charity of priests, the oratory of Valdoco, and that excellent priest who ran it, all the while ignorant of the fact that he was addressing Don Bosco himself. He said that the good priest kept over 300 boys in his house, and that they had an amazing gymnastics program there, and more importantly, they gave a wonderful education with science and morals. Some day or other, he exclaimed, I'd like to visit that marvelous house and see all those young people. Don Bosco didn't let on that it was his oratory that the shopkeeper was speaking of. No, he merely kept smiling and nodding and eventually fell silent. Then the saint reached Montenegro and the good shopkeeper left the car and never caught on to the fact that that priest was Don Bosco himself. Between Montanero and Strambino, another traveler got on who immediately began to badmouth priests right to Don Bosco's face. And remember that Don Bosco was always in cassock, so there wasn't any doubt as to his status as a priest. The man called priests useless to society, said that they enjoyed their privileges too much, all the while never following any of the maxims of the gospel. He spoke rather loudly and drew the attention of everyone else on the train. Now it was a public debate on the efficacy of priests. Don Bosco interrupted him politely and said, Excuse me, but 
Would you wish that there were no more priests in the world? Oh, no, not that, replied the traveler. There must be a religion. And so, how would you intend to do this? asked Don Bosco. At this, the man became rather flustered and said, Well, I'd, uh, I'd like to remove half of the priests. Yes, half. And which would you wish to eliminate? The good ones or the bad ones? Uh, the bad ones, of course, replied the man. And what would you do with the bad ones? asked Don Bosco. Make them practice another profession. And do you know any priests personally? Oh, psh, I know at least 50. 50? exclaimed Don Bosco. And among these 50, do you know any bad ones? Yes, uh, about half. Would you happen to know the names of these bad priests? asked Don Bosco. Oh, yes, many. Don Bosco then took out his notebook and, with pencil in hand, said to him, Well, if you don't mind, I'd like to take their names down. They need to be reported and suspended from the exercises of the sacred ministry, if all that you say is true. At this, the entire car quieted down, and all the other travelers turned around to see this blustering man's reaction to Don Bosco's brilliant challenge in the debate. So, I'm ready, Don Bosco persisted, pen poised. Well, then the gentleman began to smooth his mustache and mumble incoherently until finally he thought of something and then said rather timidly, Well, I know one who is... Well, they say he's a coward and sends his money to the Pope instead of giving it to the poor. All right, replied Don Bosco. Now what about the others? Well, uh, another is also opposed to governmental policies, and he's... He's an enemy of Italy, because he criticizes the laws voted on by Parliament. But these aren't crimes, exclaimed Don Bosco, and everyone else in the car chuckled to themselves at this man who perhaps had never associated with priests, but only learned to hate them by reading the newspapers. But now that he was talking to a living, breathing priest, he didn't have the heart to continue the debate, not knowing how to extricate himself from this mess. The man... Embarrassed, got off at the next stop. On another train ride, Don Bosco had sat next to a very curious ten-year-old boy. So Don Bosco very kindly struck up a conversation with him and his father nearby. After they had talked for some time, our saint realized that they were Jewish due to certain terms they used. The father assured our saint that the child, though very young, was already in the fourth grade and was a precocious learner. Don Bosco began quizzing him on various subjects, much to the delight of the father, who suggested that the boy's knowledge of the Bible be tested. So our saint asked him about the creation of the world, man, the earthly paradise, and the fall of our first parents. The child answered well enough. But Don Bosco was greatly amazed when he realized that he had no idea about original sin or even the promise of a redeemer, and asked him, Isn't what God promised Adam upon expelling him from the garden in your Bible? No, the young man answered him. There was a promise? Of course, said Don Bosco, and referenced the book of Genesis, saying, Behold, God said to the serpent, Because thou hast deceived the woman, thou shalt be cursed among all animals and one that shall be born of the woman shall crush thy head. Who is the one spoken of here, born of the woman? asked the boy. It's the Savior who was to deliver mankind from the bondage of the devil. Well, when will this Savior come? He will not come again. He has already come, and he's the one we call... But here the father interrupted Don Bosco and said, 
We don't study these things, for they don't pertain to our law. You would do well to study them anyway, replied Don Bosco candidly, because they are contained in the Book of Moses and the prophets to which you lend your faith. All right, replied the other. I'll think about it. But in the meantime, just stick to the arithmetic questions. Don Bosco saw that the game was up and changed to lighter topics and told stories that were very delightful and it was all that the father and other passengers could do to keep from laughing. So you see that Father Bosco, although firm in matters of faith and was not afraid to say so, also knew how to be personable. It worked, for when they reached the station and the boy had to depart, he could barely tear himself away and clutched Don Bosco's hand tearfully, saying, almost in a begging way, My name is Sacerdote Leone di Moncalvo. Remember me, and next time I pass through Turin, I hope to pay you a visit. The father, perhaps trying to distract his son from the saintly priest, asked Don Bosco if he knew of a good history of Italy, and that he'd searched high and low for one, to which Father Bosco replied that he had in fact written one expressly for the youth called Storia d'Italia, and promised that he would send them a copy as soon as he returned to Turin. Not much more is said of the matter in the biographical memoirs of St. John Bosco, but you can bet that our saint followed up on his promise and definitely sent them a copy of his history of Italy. And I'd like to think that the two converted by his writings. Thank you all so much for watching. If you'd like to hear St. John Bosco's dream of the ten hills that led to heaven, please click on the video I put on the screen. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you. St. John Bosco had three mystical dreams sent from God in April of 1861 that involved a hike to heaven. But these visions are not for the faint of heart. For as our Lord says in the Gospel of Matthew, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent bear it away. In this three-part series, Don Bosco maps out our heavenly path on this rocky, bloody journey with the prize of all prizes waiting for us at the end. You're watching The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. After evening prayers on April 7th, Don Bosco addressed his young men. I have something extraordinary to tell you. Remember that it was only a dream, not a reality but I'm only mentioning this so you won't give it more value than it deserves. I'm telling you everything because I wish you to tell me everything and be truthful. I have no secrets, but only keep what is said here within the walls of this oratory. Not that it's sinful for anyone to say this to outsiders, but I prefer that you only speak of it among yourselves. This dream is divided into three parts. It occurred during three consecutive evenings, so I will tell one part tonight and the other two on the following two nights. I found it very curious that the dreams on the second and third nights started from the exact point when they stopped the night before. Dreams occur during sleep, and therefore I was asleep. A few days earlier, I had traveled outside Turin, passing near the hills of Moncalieri, and the sight of these hills amazed me. It may be that the idea of that delightful spectacle came again to my mind on the nights of these dreams. I seemed to be in the midst of my boys on a plane. So I asked them, shall we go for a nice walk? Let's go, they responded. Where to? I asked. 
We looked at each other, and then someone shouted, Shall we hike to heaven? Yes, yes, let's hike to heaven, everyone shouted. And with that, we started off. We were on a plane, and after walking some distance, we reached the foot of a hill. It was a genuinely admirable sight. As far as we could see, it was covered with plants of all kinds. There were pear, apple, cherry, and plum trees, and grapevines were also present. However, the trees and vines were unusual because each tree had budding and fully formed flowers. They also had small and large ripe fruits. Each plant displayed beautiful manifestations of spring, summer, and autumn. There was so much fruit that it seemed that the limbs would break from the weight. My young students asked me to explain the meaning of such a miracle. To satisfy them, I answered, Paradise is not like life on earth as we know it, where temperatures and seasons change. Here, there are no changes. The temperature is always the same, very mild, suitable for growth of every plant to show the beauty and goodness of all the year's seasons. We remained for some time observing this enchanting garden. A fragrant air filled us with calm and warmth with its heavenly aromas. As we slowly climbed the hill, the young men were plucking apples, pears, and cherries from the trees. When we reached the top, we thought we were in paradise. We soon realized that we were far from it. From the summit, we could see a great plain. Beyond this large plateau was a very high mountain touching the clouds. Many people were climbing it. On the peak, we saw those who had arrived at the top and were encouraging those still climbing. Others descended from the summit to the bottom and helped those too exhausted to continue the steep climb. Those who finally reached the goal were greeted with a grand and jubilant celebration. We realized the top was paradise, and then descending to the plateau, we moved toward the mountain so that we might climb it. We had already traveled a good part of the way with many young men running ahead of their companions. At the foot of the mountain, these boys found a great lake full of blood. The size would stretch from the oratory to Castle Square. Trunks, hands, feet, arms, legs, split skulls, quartered bodies, and other lacerated limbs lay on the lake's banks. It was a gruesome sight. It looked as if a bloody battle had been fought there. Horrified, those young men who ran ahead came to a halt. I stood on the shores of this mysterious lake, looking for a way to cross, but there wasn't any way. On the opposite shores, large letters read, Through Blood. The boys asked each other, What's the lake? What does it all mean? Then I questioned the companion who always accompanied me in these dreams. He told us, Here is the blood shed by those who already touched the top of the mountain and went to heaven. This blood is that of the martyrs. It is the blood of Jesus Christ by which the bodies of those slain and witness of the faith were bathed. No one can go to heaven without passing through this blood and being sprinkled with it. This blood defends the holy mountain, a figure of the Catholic Church, from her enemies. Anyone who tries to assault her will be drowned. All of these truncated hands and feet, smashed skulls and shattered limbs that you see sewn on these shores are the miserable remains of all the enemies who fought against the church. All were torn to pieces. 
all perished in this lake. During his speech, my mysterious companion named many martyrs, including the soldiers of the Pope who fell on the battlefield. He then pointed eastward to our right. There was an immense glen five times the size of the Lake of Blood. He then added, Do you see that glen? Down there will be the blood of those who will pass by this way to ascend that mountain. It will be filled with the blood of the righteous, those who will die for the faith in future times. I encouraged the young men, terrified at what they saw and what was announced to them, saying, If we died as martyrs, our blood will be put into that valley, but our bones will never be cast with those that fought against the church. In the meantime, we saw many people, even some of our young men, walking over the water with extraordinary agility and lightness. They barely touched the water with the tips of their feet without getting wet and carried themselves to the other bank. We were astonished at this marvel. We were told, These are the righteous, the souls of the saints when freed from the prison of the body. And when the body is glorified, not only can they walk lightly and swiftly over the water, but fly over it as well. All the young men then longed to run on the waters of that lake as those they had seen had done. Then they asked me for what I thought, and I said to them, For my part, I dare not. It's foolish to suppose ourselves so righteous that we can pass over these waters like the saints without falling in. We continued on our way around the lake and circling a mountain. We came to a third lake, as vast as the others. This one was full of fire, with more broken and severed human limbs. On the opposite shore was written, Through Fire. As we stood gazing at this lake of flames, our guide said, This is the fire of the charity of God and his saints. These are flames of love and desire by which those who have not passed by blood or water must go. This fire is where tyrants tortured and consumed so many martyrs. Many had to pass this way to ascend that mountain. These flames will burn down their enemies, reducing them to ashes. We saw the Lord's enemies crushed and defeated for the third time. We hurried on farther, and beyond this lake there was a fourth lake, even more frightening. It was shaped like a giant amphitheater full of ferocious beasts, wolves, bears, tigers, lions, panthers, snakes, dogs, cats, and many monsters that stood with their jaws wide open to devour anyone who came near. Some young men were running and walking fearlessly on the heads of those frightening beasts without being harmed in the least. I wanted to call them back, so I shouted, Stop! For goodness sake, don't go any farther! Don't you see those beasts are waiting to maul and devour you? They didn't hear me, and they kept walking on the teeth and heads of those animals as if they were in the safest of places. My companion and guide said, those beasts are the world's demons, dangers, and snares. Those who pass over them with impunity are righteous and innocent souls. Do you know that it is written, You will walk over the asp and the basilisk, and you will trample the lion and the dragon. David spoke of such souls, and in the gospel we read, Behold, I give unto you the power to tread on serpents and scorpions, and over all the power of the enemy, 
and nothing shall by any means hurt you. We wondered, how shall we get past this obstacle? Will we have to walk on these horrible beasts? Let's go, someone said to me. I don't have the courage, I replied. It's presumptuous to suppose that we can pass unharmed over the heads of these fierce monsters. You can go if you want, but I'm not going. Then the young men responded, If you don't have such courage, neither do we. Then, turning away from the lake of the beasts, we saw a vast land crowded with people. However, they were without noses and ears, had their heads cut off, lacked arms and legs, and were without hands and feet. Some were missing their tongues, others had no eyes. The young men were amazed to see all these people so battered. Our companion explained, These are friends of God who, to save themselves, practiced the mortification of their senses and tongue, and thus did many good works. Many lost those parts of the body used for the great works of penance or when working for the love of God and neighbor. Those of the severed heads consecrated themselves to the Lord in a special way. While considering these things, we saw many people who had crossed the lakes ascending the mountain. Others on the summit offered their hands and encouraged those climbing. Then as they reached the top, they applauded and said, good, excellent. At the sound of all that clapping and shouting, I woke up and realized I was in bed. That was the end of St. John Bosco's first dream about his hike to heaven. So please subscribe and come back on Wednesday to hear about his second dream. Thank you all so much for watching. God bless you and Our Lady keep you. St. John Bosco had three mystical dreams sent from God in April of 1861 in which he and his boys hiked to heaven. These dreams contain much symbolism and useful advice as we shall hear today in his second dream. You're watching The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. On the evening of April 8th, the young boys gathered around Don Bosco, eager to hear about the second dream. Before starting, he renewed the prohibition to play and forbade them to move from their places in the study hall. He added, those who have to leave the study hall for any reason should always ask permission from the head desk. The young men were impatient, and Don Bosco smiled, glanced around, and continued after a brief moment. Keep well in mind that there was a large lake still to be filled with blood at the bottom of a valley near the first lake. So after seeing all the sights already described, and finishing our tour of that vast plateau, we found a clear place to advance. All my boys and I went through this valley that opened into a great square. We saw that the court was wide and spacious at its entrance, but it gradually narrowed so that at the end, near the mountain, there was a path between two cliffs through which a single man could barely pass. The square was full of content and happy people enjoying themselves as they headed to that narrow passage to the mountain. So we asked each other, could this path be the way to heaven? Those passing through the path had to crouch or lie down. They had to discard any bundle or any other thing they carried. Seeing this, 
I was sure the path was the way to heaven. It occurred to me that to go to heaven, we must not only divest ourselves of sin, but leave behind every worldly desire. Thus the apostle says, nothing impure shall enter into it. We stood there watching the path for an hour. However, instead of going across, I returned to the square to see what was happening there. We had only seen the many people there from a distance and were driven by curiosity to see what they were doing. We set out for the square, which was so vast that we couldn't see any boundaries. There a strange spectacle awaited us. We saw men and many of our boys harnessed together with different animals. There were young men whose heads were in a yoke with oxen, and I thought, what does this mean? I reflected on how the ox symbolizes laziness. I saw the ox with lazy young men that I knew and who were slow in performing their duties. I said to myself, yes, it stands to reason. It serves you right. You never wanted to do anything, and now you're harnessed to that animal. I saw others harnessed together with donkeys. These boys were the stubborn ones. They carried loads or grazed with donkeys. They were the ones who did not want to surrender to their superior's advice or commands. I saw others harnessed with mules or horses, which recalled the Lord's words, He has become like the horse and the mule, which have no understanding. These boys were those who never wanted to think about the things of the soul. Oh, what mindless wretches! Others grazed together with swine. They grunted in the filth and the earth like those filthy animals and covered themselves in mud. They feed only on earthly things, gave in to their ugly passions, and stayed away from the Heavenly Father. Oh, what a sight! I recalled what the Gospel says of the prodigal son who was reduced to this sorry state of living. Finally, I saw many people with cats, dogs, roosters, rabbits, etc. They were the thieves, the scandalous ones, the boasters, and the timid ones who failed to act out of human respect. From all these scenes, we sensed that the Great Valley represented the world. I observed well all the young people individually and where they were. We advanced a little further to another spacious part of the immense plain. The land was gently sloping so that we descended without perceiving. At some distance, the land appeared like a garden, and I said, Shall we go and see what's there? Let's go, they all responded. We stopped to look at this garden. We first came across the most beautiful purple roses. How gorgeous, the boys shouted as they ran to pluck a few, but they were greatly disappointed. Though in full bloom and colorful, those roses were rotten inside, giving off an extremely foul stench. Fresh-looking violets were there, too, but when we picked a few of them, we saw that they were also bloated and smelly. Moving on, we found ourselves amid an enchanting grove of trees, so laden with fruit that the mere sight of it caused great pleasure. The orchards were especially delightful. One young man ran up quickly and plucked a large pear from the branches. The fruit could not have been more beautiful and ripe, but as soon as he bit into it, he tossed it away in disgust, as it was full of dirt and sand and tasted horrible. What on earth is this place? we asked. One of our boys, whose name I know, said, Is all the good and beautiful that the world presents like this? Everything is about appearances. It's a lie, 
Thinking about our path, we noticed it descending, though barely perceptible. One young man observed, It's descending. We're going down because we aren't doing well. Let's go and see anyway what lies ahead, I replied. Meanwhile, an immense multitude appeared, running down the road on which we were standing. The people were in coaches, on horses, and some on foot. They were jumping, darting, singing, and dancing to music. Others were walking to the beat of a drum. There was an undeniable air of celebration and jubilation. Let's pause a little bit, we said. Let's watch a little before we set out with these people. As we watched, it appeared that certain individuals seemed to be directing specific groups inside the crowd. These individuals were handsome, well-dressed, and well-mannered. However, there were horns under their hats. The Great Plain, therefore, represented the perverse and evil world. Suddenly, our companion and guide told us, This is how men go to hell, almost without realizing it. After hearing this, I immediately called out to those boys who began to run toward me. I shouted, We don't want to go down that way. Thus, they ran back along the path from which we had come, leaving me alone. I caught up with them and said, Yes, you're right. Let us flee from here quickly and go back. Otherwise, we too will descend into hell without even knowing it. We wanted to return to the square from where we started and which had the path to the mountain of heaven. However, after a long walk, we no longer saw the valley by which we might go to heaven, but found a meadow and nothing else instead. So we turned to one side and the other, but couldn't get our bearings. We took a wrong turn, someone shouted. No, we didn't make a mistake, said another, while still others shouted, Here, this is the road. While these young people were arguing, each asserting his own opinion, I woke up. This is the second part of my dream that lasted three nights. Remember to avoid those vices that make us so much like beasts that we seem to be yoked to them. Beware especially of those sins that make us like unclean animals. Oh, how horrible it is to be yoked to oxen and donkeys. How much more shameful it is to roll in the mud like swine. We are created in the image and likeness of God and become heirs of heaven. We give all this up for those sins that Holy Scripture calls loose living. I only mentioned my dream's central points here. Telling the whole thing would take too long. Indeed, even last night I only briefly said what I saw. Tomorrow evening, I'll tell you the third part. Thank you for watching, and please subscribe and come back Friday to hear Don Bosco's final dream, the symbolism of which I find to be the most interesting. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you. Don Bosco had three dreams, or visions, sent from God in April of 1861 in which he and his oratory boys hiked to heaven. Hearing about his mystical journey gives meaning and purpose to our own struggles on this earth and reveals some of the devil's tricks that he uses to sway us from the heavenly path. Today we hear the third and final dream about his journey to heaven on this episode of The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller.
On the evening of Saturday, April 9th, Don Bosco continued the narrative of his dream. I would rather not tell you my dreams. I honestly wished I had never said a word at all. However, I must confess that if I kept these things to myself, I would feel very uneasy. Thus, reporting them to you is a great relief. I will then continue with the last part of the dream. Let me first say that the past two nights I had to cut short many things which were better left unsaid and omitted others that could not be described. After all the scenes I mentioned earlier, and seeing the various places and ways to fall into hell, we were determined to get to heaven at all costs. But, try as we might, we always strayed off the path and came upon new sights. Finally, we hit the right road and reached the plaza we had seen earlier. It was still crowded with people striving to climb the mountain. If you remember, it gradually tapered into a narrow trail wedged between two high boulders. Just beyond them was a long, narrow bridge spanning a frightful gorge. We all shouted as soon as we saw the trail. There it is! Let's go! And we went our way. Some boys immediately ran up the trail, leaving their companions behind. I wanted them to wait for me, but they had got it into their heads to arrive there first. Upon reaching the bridge, however, they all became frightened and stopped. I tried to urge them to advance bravely, but they refused. Father, you go ahead, they replied. You try it first. The bridge is too narrow. If we miss one step, we're finished. Finally, one boy mustered enough courage to cross over the bridge. Another followed him, and then the rest. Thus, we reached the foot of the mountain. We looked for a trail, but found none. As we searched, we only found boulders, crags, ravines, and briars that hindered our efforts. The climb looked steep. We knew we were in for a hard time. Nevertheless, we did not lose heart and eagerly began to work our way up. After a short but very exhausting climb on our hands and knees, occasionally helping one another, the number of obstacles lessened until we finally found a trail that allowed us to climb more comfortably. Eventually we reached a spot on the mountainside where many people suffered such horrible and strange pains that we were filled with compassion and dread. I can't tell you what I saw because it was too disturbing, and you will not endure the account. Thus, I'll leave it out entirely. We saw very many people climbing the mountain on all sides. As they reached the summit, they were greeted with loud cheers and applause by those already there. We could also hear heavenly music, a melodic singing which encouraged us to keep climbing. While we ascended, a thought struck me, and I said to the boys near me, Isn't this strange? We're on our way to heaven, but are we dead or alive? What about our judgment? Or have we already been judged? No, they replied laughingly. We're still alive. Well, I concluded, dead or alive, let's get to the top and see what's there. And we hastened our pace. With perseverance, we finally got close to the summit. Those already there were getting ready to greet us. I looked behind to see if the boys were following, and I found, to my great sorrow, that I was almost alone. Only three or four boys had kept up with me. Where are the others? I asked, somewhat upset. 
They stopped here and there, was the answer. Perhaps they'll come up later. I looked down and saw them scattered about the mountain trail, hunting for snails, picking scentless wildflowers, plucking wild berries, chasing butterflies and crickets, or just resting on some green patch under a shady tree. I shouted as loud as I could, waved to them, and called them by name, urging them to hurry up and telling them that this was not the time to rest. A few heeded my call, and I soon had about eight boys around me. All the others turned a deaf ear and kept busy with silly trifles. I had no intention of going to heaven with only a few boys, so I decided to go down and chase after those lazy fellows. So I told the boys near me to wait and then started down. I sent up the mountain every one of the boys I met. I urged, encouraged, reprimanded, and even jabbed and shoved some as needed. For heaven's sake, get up there, I kept saying. Don't waste time on trifles. Finally, after reaching nearly every one of them, I found myself almost at the crags of the mountain which we had climbed with so much effort. Here I stopped some exhausted and discouraged boys who had given up the ascent and were on their way back down. Then, as I turned to resume the climb with them, I stumbled against a stone and woke up. I ask you not to tell these stories to others outside the oratory, for if anyone heard them, they would laugh at them. Talk about these stories among yourselves as long as you like, but give them no more weight than that which applies to a dream. I want to ask you one more thing. Please don't ask me if you were in these dreams, what you did, or if you were among the boys. This could do more harm than good to some. It could also be a problem of conscience that I want you to avoid. If this last dream, for example, was real and we all died, then very few would reach heaven among so many young people here now. To give some proportions, if there were seven or eight hundred of us, perhaps three or four would make it to heaven. Now, don't be troubled because I'll explain this to you now. When I say that only three or four would fly to heaven, I mean they would go without spending some time in the flames of purgatory. Others, however, would remain there only a minute, a day, several days, and weeks. Almost all would spend at least a little time there. Do you want to know how to avoid purgatory? Seek as many indulgences as you can. Do those practices with the proper dispositions, then you may acquire a plenary indulgence and fly to heaven. With that, Don Bosco finished the narration of his three dreams about the hike to heaven. One could explain the symbolism of the last dream thusly. The scene depicting the narrow passage between the two cliffs with the little wooden bridge represents the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The confidence of walking over the bridge by those sustained in their faith, the danger of falling while crossing, and the obstacles of all kinds to reach the easy path at the end seem to point us to religious vocations. Those who stood in the square must have been young men called by God to serve him in the Salesian society of Don Bosco. The people who waited to enter that pathway to heaven were happy, satisfied, and enjoying themselves. What characterized the multitude was that it was not of adults. Some stopped going up that mountain, and others turned back. Wouldn't these actions imply a lukewarm attitude to their vocations? Don Bosco interpreted this part of the dream 
as an indirect reference to religious vocations, but he did not think it prudent to define it more clearly. On the side of the mountain, just past the obstacles on its slopes, Don Bosco saw people suffering. Some questioned him in private, wrote Don Bonetti, and he answered, This place represented purgatory. If I had a sermon on this subject, I would do nothing more than describe what I saw. There were frightening scenes. I will only say that among the various torments, I saw some being burned by torches affecting their hands, feet, and heads. I saw their eyes popping out of their sockets. They were slumped over, crushed, and subject to an indescribable horror that caused revulsion. To finish, I'd just like to say that we have to pray constantly and practice devotion to Our Lady with calm, confidence, and courage. You hear that? That's actually the Angelus bell, so I have to pray Angelus. But I'd just like to say thank you all so much for watching, and if you'd like to be included in our Saturday Mass intentions for the promoters of St. John Bosco, please follow the link in the description below. Don't give up. Our Lady's going to get you through. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you. Father and Son and Holy Ghost, Amen. Angelus Domini and Salve Maria, a conceptus spiritus sancto. Ave Maria. In this episode, Don Bosco has a dream sent from God that cautions us about the near occasions of the sin of impurity. It involves a pit with a snake at the bottom, and his boys are foolishly jumping over it. He's horrified at what happens next. You're watching the Miracles and Prophecies of Saint John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. On the evening of November 13th, Don Bosco told the young men about a brief dream almost lightheartedly. He said, maybe the dream was related to the recent commemoration of the Feast of All Saints, or Holy Souls Day. Last night I dreamt that a young man had died, and I officiated at the burial. I don't want to say that this indicates that any of you will die. However, I already had several dreams that have come true. Two days later, Don Bosco spoke again about death and said, We are in the habit of always preparing a fund of prayers for the next one to die. We must do so now. I don't want to say that another one of you will pass into eternity and benefit from this spiritual deposit of prayers. Therefore, for the next one who will die... We prepare an investment that will bear good fruit for his soul. Those who remain will be glad to be still alive. He who dies will be glad to have found that this gift was well prepared. Around this time, the exercise for a good death was done. Bishop Losana of Biela distributed the Holy Eucharist for the occasion. The next evening, Don Bosco spoke again. Yesterday morning, we did the exercise for a good death. I was concerned all day if good fruit would come from this exercise. I fear that some of you did not do this exercise well, and last night I had a dream that I'll tell you now. I was in the courtyard with all the boys of the house who were having fun by jumping all about. We left the oratory for a walk, and after some time we stopped in a meadow. There the boys resumed their games and competed with one another in jumping. In the middle of the meadow... I caught sight of a well without any enclosure around it. 
I went to make sure that it did not present any danger. Inside, I saw a terrible snake at the bottom. It was as big as a horse or even an elephant. It was short and thus appeared shapeless. It was full of yellowish spots. I withdrew trembling and saw that most youngsters were jumping from one side of that well to the other. Strangely enough, it didn't occur to me to forbid them or warn them of the danger. I saw some little ones who were so slender that they jumped over it easily. Others who were older and heavier would jump with greater effort, but with less height. They would often fall on the edge of the well. Then the head of that frightful and monstrous serpent would appear, and he would bite the boys in one of their limbs. Despite the danger, these unwary boys were so reckless that they jumped several times in a row and were bitten many times. Then a young man said to me, referring to a companion, Watch this one, he'll jump poorly now, and when he jumps the second time, that'll be the end of him. Seeing the boys lying on the ground, some bitten on the leg or arm, I was afflicted. Others suffered from weakened hearts. I asked them, why were you jumping over that dangerous well? After being bitten once and twice, why do you keep playing this deadly game? They replied with a sigh, we're not yet good at jumping. I replied, then you shouldn't be jumping. They responded again, what do you want us to do? We're not used to jumping. We didn't think it was this risky. I watched in horror and trembled as the boy who had been pointed out to me jumped. On his second jump, he fell into the well. After a few moments, the monster spat him out of the pit, black as coal. He wasn't dead yet and kept talking. We stood there looking at him. All were frightened to death while questioning him. Don Bosco gave the interpretation of the dream to his boys as follows. The pit refers to the book of Proverbs, deep hole, narrow well, a pit of perdition. The demon of impurity lies in it, as St. Jerome explains in the 11th homily on St. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. The dream does not seem to be about souls already enslaved to sin, but about those who put themselves in danger of committing sins. The process to sin begins with the lightheartedness and joy of recreation. Thus, everyone enjoys peace of conscience, but soon the scene changes. The little ones leap unharmed and safely over the well, for their passions have not been aroused in them because they intend to do no evil. Fun absorbs their thoughts, and their guardian angels protect their innocence and simplicity. It doesn't say that they return to jump over the pit again, for perhaps they were obedient to the warning from a friend. The other older boys also jump. They have no experience, and they're not as agile as the little ones. They feel the weight of the first struggles to preserve virtue, and the serpent is hiding, ready to strike. They seem to ask, is it a mortal danger to risk jumping over that pit? They begin their leaps. The first leap represents the acts of pursuing immoral relationships, accepting impure books, or welcoming an affection into their heart that isn't moral. Instead, it's a leap that creates the habit of engaging in excessively free and overexcited acts, rejecting good companions, transgressing rules, or ignoring the warnings of superiors who give grave importance to safeguarding morals. The first jump resulted in the first wounds from the snake. 
Some crossed the pit unharmed and prudently didn't try again. However, others ignored the known danger and jumped recklessly to their detriment. Those who fell into the pit and were spat out by the monster seemed to have fallen into mortal sin. Although spiritually dead, they still hoped to be healed through the sacraments. About those who remain in the pit, let it be said that he who loves danger shall perish in it. We might ask ourselves, did I jump over that pit in my innocence? Did I continue to do so? Did I fall into the pit? What hope is there for me now? Where there's life, there's hope. Our infinitely divine Savior knew we were all sinners and gave us a way to resurrect our dead souls after sin by confession. And after we have been reconciled to God and forgiven, we may partake in Holy Communion to strengthen our souls and not put ourselves in the occasion of sin ever again. Have calm, courage, and confidence. Never give up. If you'd like to watch the series we did on Don Bosco's Vision of Hell, please click on the link I've put on the screen, and don't forget to subscribe for future stories about this great saint. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you. Early on in St. John Bosco's priestly life, he would often travel to parishes outside Turin to preach a mission. Scores of people would come to hear him, and they were greatly edified by the examples that he gave. But what was St. John Bosco's secret to giving a good sermon? We'll find out in this episode of The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. When St. John Bosco was still a newly ordained priest, he was asked to preach a mission in Canelli. He therefore left Turin and set out with Father Carlo Palazzolo. On the way, they encountered a man driving a cart who spurred on his horses by uttering horrible profanities. Don Palazzolo couldn't contain himself, and turning to the man said, Is this how you blaspheme the name of God? He continued to rebuke him soundly. The man became irate and shouted, Priests are no better than anyone else. Mind your own business, or you'll be sorry. Things were getting serious when Don Bosco intervened. The saint asked his companion to go on to Canelli before him and give the introductory sermon, while he would continue on with the angry man. Father Canelli agreed, remembering the parable of the shepherd who leaves his 99 sheep to find the one that was lost. So Don Bosco walked with the angry man. He pitied the man's hard life, praised him for being honest, soothed his feelings, and even made friends with him. Almost imperceptibly, he made the man agree that God's holy name should always be respected, told him about the chastisements that fall upon blasphemers, and ended by urging him to go to confession. I'm ready to go, replied the man, deeply moved, but where? The saint pointed to a shady meadow near the road, and the man immediately stopped the cart and knelt before Don Bosco at the foot of a tree. The penitent confessed with deep contrition, and afterwards, full of joy, continued on his trip with Don Bosco. In parting, he couldn't find words to express his gratitude for the priest's kindness and patience. 
Upon entering Canelli, Don Bosco had a sort of revelation upon hearing a conversation between two young men who walked past him. One asked, where are you off to today? The other replied, I'm going to the vineyard. These words resounded in Don Bosco's soul. He saw it as a sign of a great harvest that the Lord was preparing for him, and many years later, he would often recount this incident with affection. He preached in Canelli for ten days. Such was their enthusiasm for his Christ-like manner. He then went on to Castelnuovo, where he gave a sermon on the Novena of the Most Holy Rosary and heard many confessions. His preaching produced great fruit among both the adults and the children in the countryside. Most were rough and even illiterate, but yet they readily understood his unique method of instructing. Don Bosco later said of this mission, The reception to these sermons was beyond my expectations. I was amazed because I said nothing new. I dealt with subjects that any ordinary priest would know better than I. In these sermons, I realized that you don't need lofty, sublime, extraordinary, or rare things to please and do good to people. All they want is to understand what the preacher is saying. If they understand, they're happy. If not, they're bored. I learned to preach by practicing sermons done in this way. If I had studied all the treatises on the art of oratory and read all the most celebrated preachers, I would certainly have failed to do good for these people. What displeases country folk the most is when the preacher begins his sermon, but then sits down for a break. Now, I personally have never seen this before, but it must have been really common back then for St. John Bosco to comment on it. He continues, then, just before the end, he sits down again without the people knowing why. Except when one has to take up the collection, I believe the sermon should be given without interruption. When you deal with morals, you must explain the minutest details. Above all, and I repeat this a thousand times, people must understand everything you say. It has to be within reach of their intellectual capacity. Nothing should be developed that presents difficulty or ambiguity. The topic may seem trivial and too detailed at times, but it can make a great impression. I would start without following any method or rules of preaching. Your only concern is to be understood and to highlight some details that appeal to the people. Because of this method, large crowds would come to listen to me with pleasure. They would never have come had I prepared my sermons with an introductory part, first and second parts. These segments are too overbearing, and the average person doesn't understand them. To prepare and have a certain order in the sermon is good, but I believe the main thing is to define the subject of the sermon extremely well. If the outline is well prepared, then everything will flow from that. Circumstances will bring the right words to mind. The introduction can be taken from any place, time, or circumstance. Now the most useful tools are similes, parables, fables, and allegories. With these, you can firmly express a truth that no one forgets. I still remember the impression I made during a sermon in which I wanted to explain that God bene omnia fecit. As we read in the Gospel of St. Mark, he has done all things well. I wanted to prove that God arranged all things as they are, and the whole makes up a wondrous order, 
so entirely turned to the good of man. Thus, people should see everything that happens to them as if God directly sent it. I told this parable. A weary traveler stopped in the shade of some oak trees and wondered, why did the Lord give such small fruits of acorns to these huge oak trees? Look at the small, ugly pumpkin plant that can't even hold itself up. Why did God give it such a big fruit? These big pumpkins would be beautiful hanging up there from these oak branches. Imagine hundreds and hundreds of them hanging from all sides of the oak tree. With these thoughts, he fell asleep. Meanwhile, a slight breeze arose, causing a small acorn to fall and hit the traveler on the nose, waking him up. Oh, Lord, he cried, coming to his feet and touching his aching nose. You have done so well by giving such tall plants so small of a nut. If it had been a pumpkin falling on me from that height, it would have smashed my head and I'd be dead. Another time, I wanted my flock to know the folly of pride and vanity. What did I do? Had I recited the texts of the Holy Scripture and the Holy Fathers on this subject, the young men would have taken little notice. They would have been bored and soon forgotten the lesson. Therefore, I told them about Aesop's fables in great detail, but I added a few aspects to the original story. It was the tale about a frog that wanted to make itself as big as an ox. Hence, he puffed himself up so much that he exploded. I told this fact near Valentino Park and included many other ridiculous circumstances. So I made this frog talk with other frogs to bring out some moral issues. The effect seemed extraordinary. Yet, what could be more trivial than this tale? So you see that St. John Bosco drew his arguments from his knowledge of theology and he followed a logical outline, but the secret of his success as an effective preacher for both the ignorant and the learned was that he preached not to show off, but to advance the greater glory of our Lord Jesus Christ and touch their hearts. Thus, he wasn't above using simple tales to convey his meaning, just as our Lord Jesus Christ did with parables. If you'd like to hear Don Bosco's advice on how to avoid sins of impurity, please click on the video I've put on the screen. And don't forget to subscribe for three Don Bosco stories a week. God bless you and Our Lady keep you. Let's go. You stayed still for a long time. It was good. For those of you who watched our video on Don Bosco's Dream of Hell and said, this is just a dream, it doesn't mean anything, I would like to present to you the following story that provides irrefutable proof that St. John Bosco's dreams were visions sent from God to convey a truth in reality, whether it be about hell or the sin of impurity, or as in today's dream, to prophesy someone's death. You're watching The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. On February 1st, Don Bosco announced that a young student might die before the month's exercise for a happy death. If he lived long enough to finish the special prayers, that time would be the maximum amount of time God would allow him to live. A dream prompted this announcement. As Don Bosco slept, he seemed to be entering the courtyard 
and found himself amid his young boys at recess. By his side, he had the usual guide who accompanied him in previous dreams. Suddenly, a majestic eagle appeared, circling lower and lower above the boys. Don Bosco marveled at the bird, and the guide said, Do you see that eagle? He wants to seize one of your boys. Which one? asked Don Bosco. The one on whose head the eagle is going to land. Don Bosco stared at the bird. After a few more turns, the eagle alighted on 13-year-old Antonio Ferraris from Castellazzo Bormida. Don Bosco recognized the boy and woke up. Then, as soon as he awoke, he clapped his hands to see if he was awake and started to pray, Lord, if this isn't a dream but true, when will it occur? He fell asleep again, and the guide reappeared, saying, Ferraris will not do the exercise for a happy death more than once. Thus, Don Bosco realized that it was real. He had to tell Ferraris without saying his name to him or the others. At that time, he was healthy. A month later, Don Bosco repeated the prediction to his boys. At the time, a 13-year-old boy named Giabantista Savio, a native of Cambiano, had been with his parents on March 1st. He was suffering from a severe illness, and the rumor had spread that he was the one whose end was predicted by Don Bosco. When speaking to the boys that evening of March 3rd, he said, Tonight, I want to talk to you about your life at the oratory. First, Lent has already begun, and we must sanctify it with good works. Those who are obliged to fast already know what they must do without my telling them. But what about the others? They, too, must do good works, and since they cannot fast due to their ages, let them do something else. I suggest confession and frequent Holy Communion to obtain all the graces you need from God. Of all the times in the year, Lent is the most advantageous to ask for help. I've already announced that one of us will die. You might ask me, is Savio the one? I won't tell you. Who is he then? The Lord knows. He's among you, and he has heard my warning. I hope he did well in his last exercise for a happy death. Be prepared, therefore, all of you. Our divine Redeemer said nineteen centuries ago, death will come like a thief in the night when we least expect it. I repeat these warnings to you now because I've noticed for some time that disturbances have entered the house that must stop. Lies are often told with ease. There are too many pretexts for leaving the church during sacred services. Going through the house, I always find boys loitering filled with excuses to silence those supervising them. Even during study time, boys are absent with the pretext of going to confession. I'm pleased with the greater part of you who are doing well. However, a few commit faults. In the refectory, soup and bread are splattered on the floor over your companions and sometimes jokingly over those in charge of you. Therefore, don't commit such faults anymore. Try to do better in the future. I recommend that you go to confession and communion frequently. But it's better not to confess than to make bad confessions. It will be one less confession, but also one less sacrilege. But you might ask me, but shall we no longer confess? I say it's better to stay as you are rather than add a sacrilege to your already heavy conscience. What shall we do then? 
remedy all confessions poorly made, and remedy them promptly, because if by sin your souls will be redder than scarlet, by penance they will become whiter than snow. Make your thanksgiving properly after Holy Communion. Some have the nerve to approach Holy Communion and think nothing of correcting their faults. They're not afraid to waste long hours talking about banalities and fleeing from their studies. Yet others receive Holy Communion in the morning, and during the day they engage in indecent conversations with their companions. Some murmur about this and that and complain about their superiors and fellow students. How can it be said that these people have made truly good communions? Strive to show that you know how to draw fruit from the sacraments. I know we can't become perfect in a moment. We overcome our defects only gradually and with much difficulty. However, at least try to eradicate them. Please show me that some improvement is taking place in your soul. Give proof of your good will by fulfilling your duties and being diligent. The next day, someone asked Don Bosco privately about the one who would die next. Don Bosco replied, The surname of the one who is to leave for eternity begins with the letter F. About thirty pupils bore surnames with this initial, and all were in good health. Now at that time, a teacher named John Bezio entered Don Bosco's room and said, I regret that the Lord always takes the best young men from me. Tell me. Is it one of my boys that will die? Yes, it's the boy whose name is Antonio Ferraris. He's very virtuous and he's prepared. Bizio asked him how he knew, and Don Bosco told him about his dream. He said, Keep an eye on him and alert me so that I may go and assist him in the last days of his illness. In the meantime, Antonio Ferraris began to experience an illness that occasionally forced him to go to the infirmary. At first, it seemed a minor ailment, but soon it worsened. Don Bosco went to the boy's bed with Dr. Gribaldo, who saw that the sick boy's life was in danger. The boy's mother came to the oratory while her son's state was not yet critical. After caring for him for a few days, she, who considered Don Bosco a saint, said to Bizio, "'Has Don Bosco said whether my son will live or die?' Why do you ask me this question? Bizio answered. To know whether I should stay or return home. But what about the disposition of his soul? Bizio asked. I am a mother, and of course I wish for my son to get well. For the rest, let the Lord do what he thinks is best for him. And are you resigned to God's will? asked Bizio. Yes, whatever the Lord wills, the mother responded. But what if your son dies? Let God's will be done. Seeing her generous disposition, Bizio hesitated a little and said, Then stay. Don Bosco assured me that your son is a good young man and is well prepared. The Christian mother listened, shed a few tears, and said, If so, I will stay. Bizio had told her to stay because, according to Don Bosco's prophecy, her son had no more than five or six days left to live. Antonio Ferraris died on the morning of March 16th, receiving all the comforts of religion. When he entered his last agony, Don Bosco approached his bed, suggested some ejaculations, and gave him final absolution. The boy then commended his soul to God. 
His death occurred before completing the second exercise for a happy death, as the dream had predicted. On the evening of March 16th, Don Bosco thus spoke to his boys, I see you're anxious to hear from me about the last moments of our Ferraris. I'm here to answer you. He died with resignation. During his short illness, he suffered much, but with great serenity. I asked him if he wanted anything from me, and he said, only one thing, help me get to heaven. I ask all those watching this video to pray to St. Joseph that we too may have such a resigned and holy death, and if you'd like to be enrolled in our Saturday Mass intentions for the promoters of St. John Bosco, please click on the link I've put on the screen. I'd like to thank you all once again for subscribing and watching our videos. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you. St. John Bosco's prophetic mission is especially confirmed in today's episode. We'll hear about his vision of a monstrous red horse that symbolized the persecution of the Catholic Church. You're watching The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. On July 6th, Don Bosco told some people about his dream involving a red horse. He said, I had a strange dream where I was together with the Marchioness de Barolo and we were walking on a little square that opened into a large plain. I could see the young men from the oratory playing, jumping, and having a good time. The Marchioness began to speak about a school for girls she wanted to start, and I wanted to help her, but she said, no, no, stay where you are. We discussed the situation of my young boys, and she said, it's all very well for you to take care of them, but leave the care of young ladies to me, then we'll get along. I responded, but didn't our Lord Jesus Christ come into the world to redeem both boys and girls? She answered, I know that our Lord redeemed everyone, boys and girls. So I said, well then, I must see to it that his blood isn't shed in vain, either for young men or young women. While we were talking, the boys who were on the little square suddenly became quiet. They left their games and fled, full of fright, some to one side, some to the other. The Marchioness and I stopped talking and stood still for a moment. I looked for the cause of this terror. The Marchioness and I then went to see what was happening. I raised my eyes a little and saw a large horse descending on the ground at the foot of the plain. It was an enormous horse. His presence filled me with blood-chilling fear. As I related the dream to others, Don Franchesia asked, Was the horse as big as this room? Much bigger, I replied. It must have been three or four times as tall and as big as the Palazzo Madama building. In short, it was something extraordinary. I wanted to flee, fearing some catastrophe. Marchioness di Barolo fainted and fell to the ground. I could hardly stand up because my knees were shaking. I ran and hid behind a cottage, which was not far away. However, some boys hiding there chased me away, shouting, Go! Go away! Don't come here! Meanwhile, I said to myself, What is this horse? I did not want to run away anymore. Though trembling, I took courage and returned to the scene to observe him more closely. 
Oh, what a horrible monster with those upturned ears and that snout. He seemed to have many people on his back, and he had wings. So I exclaimed, This is a devil! While contemplating him, others also observed and asked me, What is this monster? I was told, This is the red horse from the apocalypse. I woke up and found myself in a cold sweat and completely frightened. The image of the horse haunted me that morning while saying mass and even in the confessional. Let us now have someone look up holy scriptures to see if this red horse is spoken of and then figure out what it means. Father Rua found the reference to the red horse in Apocalypse chapter 6, verse 3 through 4. It said, And when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come and see. And there went out another red horse. And to him that sat thereon, it was given that he should take peace from the earth, and that they should kill one another. And a great sword was given to him. This horse symbolizes the bloody persecution against the Holy Catholic Church. Don Bosco understood that the red horse represented the sectarian democracies of the time, which, pouring out their fury against the church, advanced to the detriment of the social order by destroying Christian civilization. This secular regime imposed itself on governments, schools, municipalities, and courts. It yearned to accomplish this devastating work begun by its accomplices, the established authorities, to the detriment of every religious society, every pious institution, and the common law of private property. Don Bosco said, all good people must strive to halt this beast with zeal and courage, each in his own way. How might this be done? By warning the people through the exercise of charity and publications against this monster's false doctrines that turn minds and hearts against the chair of Peter. The church is the unconquered foundation of all authority from God. The first principle that binds every social order and the unchanging code of men's duties and rights. She is the divine light that shines through the errors of evil passions and illuminates the faithful. She's the mighty guardian of evangelical and natural morality. On earth, she constantly affirms eternal rewards for those who keep the Lord's law and equally announces eternal punishments for transgressors. The church, the chair of St. Peter, and the Pope are the same. Don Bosco manifested his great love for the Supreme Pontiff in word and deed. He said he would even kiss the pages of Salzano's ecclesiastical history one by one precisely because this Italian historian was an admirer of the legitimate authority of the Pope, especially the early Popes. Whenever Don Bosco spoke to young people about the Popes, he had trouble finishing his talk because he always had more to say in praise of them. His talks were so attractive that he impassioned all who listened. His book, The Lives of the Popes, gives readers a good idea of his high esteem for the office. There were two subjects that especially touched him in his life, and they caused great admiration in him, the virtue of modesty and the papacy. Let's pray to Our Lady that we might share Don Bosco's enthusiasm for the office of the papacy. Let us pray for the church. If you'd like to hear about how Don Bosco actually prophesied an oratory boy's death in order to prepare him for heaven, please click on the video I've put on the screen. 
and I'd like to thank you all for even watching and subscribing to these videos. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you. Don Bosco's main concern was the good of his spiritual flock. He remembered the verse from the book of Proverbs, take good care of your flocks, give careful attention to your herds, which is why he prayed to acquire exact knowledge about his sheep and asked for the grace to watch over them carefully. His prayers were answered in the form of a vision which revealed the importance of retaining or regaining one's baptismal innocence and not causing scandal. If not, there would be three great famines as a result of their sin. He also saw some of his oratory boys in a symbolic garden representing heaven, which is an event from his life that's seldom talked about. Join us for our two-part series on Don Bosco's dream, The Countless Lambs. You're watching The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. On Trinity Sunday, the young men waited for Don Bosco to recount a dream he had promised to tell them three days earlier. Coincidentally, this feast day fell on the 26th anniversary of Don Bosco's first Mass. After evening prayers, Don Bosco mounted the podium and began, On one of the last nights of May, the 29th or 30th, I was in bed and unable to sleep. I thought of my dear boys and said to myself, I wish I could think of something that would benefit them. I lay for a while, reflecting, and resolved, Yes, I want to plan something helpful for my boys. As soon as I fell asleep, I found myself in an immense plain, covered with a huge number of large sheep, divided into flocks and grazing in meadows that extended as far as the eye could see. I looked for the shepherd, marveling that anyone in the world could possess such a large number of sheep. I soon saw a shepherd leaning on his staff and walked up to him. Whose enormous flock is this? I asked him, but he gave me no answer. So I repeated the question, whose flock is this? Why do you have to know? He countered. Why are you avoiding the question? I asked. Well, he responded cryptically, this flock belongs to their master. I already knew that, I said to myself, and then continued aloud, Who is he? Don't be annoyed, he responded. You'll soon know. I followed him through the valley, examining the flocks in the meadows. In some places, the valley was covered with rich grasses and trees where beautiful, healthy sheep grazed. In other areas, the plain was barren, sandy, full of stones, thorn bushes, and yellow thistles. Not a blade of fresh grass could be seen. Many unhealthy sheep grazed there. My guide took me by the hand and said, You need not concern yourself with these sheep. I will show you the flock you are to care for. But who are you? I asked. I'm the owner. Come with me. He led me to another area where there were thousands and thousands of lambs. These were so numerous that they couldn't be counted but so thin that they could hardly walk. The meadow was dry, arid, and sandy. It had no blades of fresh grass. The lambs had completely destroyed every pasture. I quickly saw these poor lambs were covered with sores and suffering greatly. 
How strange they looked. Each had two long, thick horns on its forehead, as if it were an old ram. At the tip of the horns hung an object in the shape of an S. I was puzzled by these little lambs that already had long and big horns. They had rapidly destroyed all their pasture. I said to the shepherd, Why are these lambs so small, but already have such long horns? Look closer, he answered. Looking more closely, I saw that these lambs had the figure three printed on all parts of their bodies, their rumps, heads, muzzles, ears, nose, legs, and hoofs. But what does this mean? I exclaimed. I don't understand. What? You don't understand? The shepherd responded. Listen then, and I'll tell you everything. This vast plain is the whole world. The grassy places represent the word of God and his grace. The barren and arid parts are those places where people don't listen to God's word and only seek to please the world. The sheep are the grown men, and the lambs are the boys. God sent you, Don Bosco, for the boys. The oratory is this corner of the plain, and the lambs are your boys. This barren place represents the state of sin. The horns signify dishonor. The letter S stands for scandal. Evil example leads many to ruin. Among these lambs, some have broken horns. They were scandalous once, but now no longer give scandal. The number three stands for a triple penalty. The lambs suffer from three great famines, spiritual, moral, and material. They ask for spiritual aid, but don't get it. They suffer a moral famine by being deprived of God's word. Finally, there's a material famine caused by a lack of food. The barren pasture means that the lambs have eaten everything. There is nothing left for them but dishonor and the three famines. This spectacle also shows the present sufferings of so many people in the world. At the oratory, even the most pitiful boys have something to eat. While I listened and observed everything, all those lambs changed their appearance. Rising on their hind legs, they became tall and turned into boys. I approached to see if I knew any of them. They were all young men from the oratory. However, I had never seen many of them, although all claimed to be oratory boys. Some of these unknown boys are currently in the oratory. These boys never present themselves to me or come to me for advice, and they flee from me. Because they have no relationship with me, I don't yet know them. However, the immense majority of the unknowns were those who were not yet in the oratory. Sadly, observing that multitude, my guide took me by the hand and said, Come with me, and you'll see many other things. He led me to a remote corner of the valley, surrounded by little hills encircled by a hedge of luxuriant plants. There we found a large meadow filled with fragrant grasses, scattered with colorful wildflowers, fresh groves, and streams of clear waters. Here I saw another considerable number of cheerful boys who had formed or were forming beautiful robes with the meadow's flowers. At least you have these boys to console you, the man said. Who are they? I asked. They're boys in the state of grace. 
I had never seen such beautiful and radiant people and things, nor could I ever imagine such splendor. It's impossible to describe them without being there. I watched those young men with immense pleasure and saw many who I did not know among them. So my guide said, Come with me, and I'll show you something that will give you greater joy and consolation. He led me to another meadow with even lovelier and more fragrant flowers than the ones I had already seen. It had the appearance of a royal garden. We found many boys of such extraordinary beauty and splendor that they outshone those we had just admired. Some are already in the oratory, and others will come later. To hear about this marvelous vision of the Garden of Heaven, please subscribe and come back Friday for part two. You don't want to miss it. God bless you, and Our Lady keep you. In this mystical dream of St. John Bosco, he talks about the virtue of innocence, which can be restored if lost, and tells us about what awaits us if we persevere and keep fighting. I find his vision of a garden that represents heaven to be one of the most encouraging things I've ever read from this great saint. We'll hear part two of his dream called The Countless Lambs in this episode of The Miracles and Prophecies of St. John Bosco, a project of America Needs Fatima. I'm your host, Matthew Miller. My guide led me to another meadow with lovelier and more fragrant flowers than the ones I had already seen. It had the appearance of a royal garden. We found many boys of such extraordinary beauty and splendor that they outshone those we had just admired. Some are already in the oratory, and others will come later. These boys have preserved the beautiful lily of purity, my guide explained. They are still clothed in the robe of innocence. I looked on in ecstasy. Almost all the boys wore a crown of flowers of indescribable beauty on their heads. These tiny little flowers displayed vivid colors, more than a thousand colors. The boys wore robes of dazzling whiteness that extended to their ankles, interwoven with garlands of flowers like those in their crowns. These flowers emitted an enchanting light that entirely covered each boy and reflected its own joy on them. The flowers also reflected one another's beauty and the beauty of the wreaths and the garlands. Each flower vibrated with the rays emitted from the others. When any ray of one color collided with a ray of another color, together they formed new, different, sparkling rays, and thus new rays were reproduced again and again so that I could never have believed heaven could contain so manifold an enchantment. That's not all. The rays and flowers of each crown and garment were mirrored in the rays and flowers of all other crowns and garments, so the splendors of each young man's face bounced back and merged with those of his companions' faces. All those innocent, round little faces produced so much light that it dazzled my eyes and prevented me from fixing my gaze on them. Thus, each boy accumulated the beauty of all his companions with harmonious, ineffable light. The light was the accidental glory of the saints. 
No human image can describe how beautiful each young man became in that ocean of splendors. In particular, I recognized some of the boys who are now here at the oratory, and I'm sure that if they could see at least one-tenth of their present beauty, they would be ready to suffer fire, torture, and martyrdom rather than lose it. As soon as I could recover somewhat from this heavenly sight, I turned to my guide and said, Among so many of my young men, are so few innocent ones? Are these the only ones who have never lost the grace of God? The guide answered me, Doesn't this number seem large enough to you? For the rest, those who have had the misfortune of losing the beautiful lily of purity, and with it their baptismal innocence, can still follow their companions here by doing penance. In that meadow, many flowers can still be found which can be woven into beautiful crowns and garments, and those boys can join their companions in the glory of heaven. Tell me some more advice to give to my young men, I pleaded. The guide replied, Tell them again that if they knew how precious and beautiful innocence and purity are in God's sight, they would make any sacrifice to preserve it. Tell them to have the courage to practice the virtue of innocence, which surpasses others in beauty and splendor. Those who are chaste are like lilies growing in the sight of God. I then wished to go among those dear boys so crowned, but I stumbled on the ground, woke up, and found myself in bed. My children, are you all innocent? Perhaps some among you are, and I address you in particular with these words. For pity's sake, don't lose a treasure of such inestimable value. Your purity is a treasure worth as much as heaven, as much as God. You should have seen how beautiful these young men were with their crowns. The whole spectacle was such that I would have given anything to continue enjoying that sight. Indeed, if I were a painter, I would consider it a great grace to be able to paint what I saw in some way. If you knew the beauty of an innocent soul, you would subject yourself to any painful hardship to preserve the treasure of innocence, even death. The number of those who had returned to grace brought me great consolation, yet I had hoped the number would be much more significant. I was amazed to see that some boys who appeared pure here in this world had long, thick horns in the dream. Don Bosco ended his account by warmly encouraging those who have lost their innocence to strive willingly to regain grace through penance. Two days later, on June 18, 1867, Don Bosco returned to the chair in the evening to talk more about his dream. No more explanation regarding the dream is needed, but I will repeat what I have already said. The great plane in my dream is the world. It's also the places and the state to which all our youth here are called. That corner where the lambs were is the oratory. The lambs were all the past, present, and future students of the oratory. There were three meadows that had three different symbolisms. The barren represented the state of sin, the green symbolized the state of grace, and the flowery, the state of innocence. Each horn on the lamb represents the scandals of its past, some had broken horns. These lambs had once given scandal, but now ceased giving scandal. Every appearance of the number three represents the three chastisements that God will send to the young people. 
the famine of spiritual aid in which they will ask for spiritual help and will not get it. Moral famine, which is a lack of religious instruction and deprivation of the word of God. And finally, material famine, caused by a lack of food. However, the radiant young people in the dream represent those in God's grace, especially those who retain their baptismal innocence. The trappings of the beautiful virtue of purity and great glory awaits them. Therefore, dear young people, let us courageously set out to practice virtue. Let those who are not in the grace of God put themselves in grace through confession and then persevere in it until death with all their strength and with God's help. If we all cannot join the innocent around the Immaculate Lamb, Jesus, at least let us follow them. One among you asked me if he was among the innocent. I told him no, he had horns, but they were broken. He asked me again if he had sores, and I said yes. What do these sores mean? He asked. I answered, don't be afraid. They're healed, and they'll soon disappear. These sores are now no longer dishonorable, just as the scars of a fighter aren't dishonorable. A fighter who, despite many wounds and the enemy's best efforts at beating him down, has become victorious. Therefore, they're honorable scars. But more honorable is the one who, fighting bravely amid the enemy, bears no wounds. His safety excites the wonder of all. Don Bosco finished explaining his dream with a prophecy. He predicted that there would be an epidemic, a famine, and a lack of material means. And as we'll cover in a future video, he was exactly right. I hope you'll remember his wise counsel to take courage and try to regain your innocence if you've already lost it. Be like the scrappy fighter Don Bosco described. Don't give up. And if you're especially in need of spiritual aid, you can enroll in our Saturday Mass intentions for the promoters of St. John Bosco by clicking on the link I've put on the screen. God bless you all, and Our Lady keep you.